Welcome to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name is Lewis Reining. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also podcasting as part of the Tej FM network. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. Later in the show, we'll hear from Richmond-based journalist Peter Galaska, plus an interview about enslaved people's dwellings that are still standing, and an initiative to provide access through virtual tours. But right now, we're joined here in the studio by Emily Hayes, news reporter Ali Sullivan and Nora Melinda, interns at Charlottesville Tomorrow. Today we're talking about a a particularly weighty and complex issue, Charlottesville's efforts to undo the symbolic and structural racism that's present. And there are a couple big um, topics you guys are reporting on in particular. Can we start with John Henry James? So John Henry James was a lynching victim. He was a Charlottesville resident of about five to six years. And um, as he was on his way to his trial from Stanton to Charlottesville, his train was ambushed by a mob of white men who were one of which was disguised as a damsel in distress making the conductor stop the train and as the train stopped um they were ambushed and he was taken and lynched outside of a blacksmith shop this is near uh ivy road or present day farmington country club so on Wednesday yesterday, the Albemarle County Office Building unveiled the first part of their larger project, which is meant to contextualize arrests and lynchings and parts of Charlottesville Albemarle history that they would like the community to be able to remember and commemorate. So Nora and, and Ali, both of you have been, have been working on this. I'm curious if you could also talk about uh, the process of 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 rediscovering the story and the way in which it was received that we're now at the point where a memorial has been put up. Sure. So the site of the murder by lynching was, as Emily said, at the Farmington Country Club and a researcher at UVA, Jane Smith, um, found that location um, a little over a year ago. And at that location, um, a group of community residents came and took soil from the location and brought it to the Equal Justice Initiatives Museum in Montgomery, Alabama through a community pilgrimage event, and that took place last July. Since then, there has been community support for this memorial, and the Board of Supervisors in Albemarle approved the memorial about a month ago. Emily, I was wondering if you could maybe speak to the context in which this is happening and sort of what it means in the larger effort to, to combat the, the both historical and present-day racism that exists. Yeah, so the discovery of John Henry James as a lynching victim, I mean, it, it sort of had gone on in oral history a little bit, it sounds like, but um, it sort of formally became known during the Blue Ribbon Commission on Race and Memorials, I think is what it was called, and this was a, they discovered a whole host of, of stories and um, figures to memorialize. And this was part of the context, even predating August 2017, about the city rethinking, you know, how do you show history um, in physical space? 
And then, Emily, I know you in particular, I believe, were working on uh, a story about another initiative for uh, to combat the, the structural racism, in particular, that sh- uh, the Charlottesville Food Justice Network. Yeah. So I think this is interesting because it's um, part of, I think it gets at the sense of what the community is doing after August 12th, but also how it predated um, the white supremacist rallies. This also, the, the Charlottesville Food Justice Network was started before August 12th, um, but they're really picking up steam, and I think they have, they're about to finalize their plan for how to get food security in, uh, in the city, and that you were even talking about the county and some of the surrounding areas as well. So um, they held a two-day workshop this week on Tuesday and Wednesday, and this was facilitated by the Environmental Protection Agency's Local Food, Local Places program. Um, Charlottesville is kind of a unique recipient in this program. It's more affluent than a lot of places. A lot of places are in sort of Rust Belt areas or um, you know, areas where industry has kind of left and there's not a, as much of a strong economy, whereas Charlottesville has a very strong economy. But um, there are still ongoing disparities that haven't changed in some ways over the last um, last. 15 years. So there's the Orange Dot report that came out in 2018 that says one quarter of Charlottesville families can't afford basic necessities and the necessities that you um, that are required to work. So childcare and transportation would also be factored into that. Um, and then I was looking at numbers for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, uh, which is, you know, used to be called food stamps. And the same number of people are receiving SNAP as received it in 2005. Um, So this is despite Charlottesville also having a lot of best practices in terms of food security efforts. Um, This was something that the facilitators really noted that Charlottesville, you know, has done a lot of great things and they use Charlottesville as an example in other communities. But, um, you know, it just takes a lot of time to to really achieve, um, to reduce these disparities. And so within that context, the, the Charlottesville Food Justice Network is is trying to put together a, a series of plans or sort of an overall, not just, I guess, not just a vision, but a pathway forward to that, to a more equitable uh, you know, food security for everyone? Right. Um, and so part of how they're doing this is they are making race and class an explicit part of their plan. Um, Chantel Bingham who is the main coordinator of the Charlottesville Food Justice Network, um, said that that without equity as an explicit part, it'll you know you won't achieve what you want to achieve. And so part of how they're doing that is they're making sure that the people most affected by food insecurity are also at the table while they make the plan. So to do that, they had a translator there. There were a lot of international rescue committee um, farmers through the New Roots program. Um, that had a translator f- for the second day, um, a translator for Nepali. So apparently there was a whole table and a half of, of Nepali speakers who were also weighing in on the plan. Um, and there was also a stipend that was given to, to low-income participants. So the recommendations that came out of this were um, people were talking about permanent markets. So how do you make sure that there's fresh food in low-income neighborhoods and that it's run by low-income people, so it's sort of an economic, uh, a workforce development program at the same time. 
the the group talked about having a staff person in the city just focused on food and urban agriculture. They talked about reserving 3% of city-owned land for urban agriculture. And they came up with a lot of the same nutrition ideas that um, students at Charlottesville High School are already talking about for um, increased information about what kind of food is available and the effects of different kinds of food and um, and fresh food that's linked to the, to the garden that's already going on at CHS. Um, so it, it looks like this will all get solidified into a plan that everyone will be able to read in about three months. And that's also with the help of the Local Food, Local Places initiative. Emily Hayes is a news reporter. Ali Sullivan and Nora Melinda, interns at Charlottesville Tomorrow. Find out more and read the latest at charlottesvilletomorrow.org. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Teej FM Network, T-E-E-J dot F-M. WTJU and Teej FM are both a service of the University of Virginia. Opinions expressed on this show are, of course, just that. Opinions, not the positions of the University of Virginia. Well, here at Soundboard each week, we check in with state news and politics. And as we do each week, we connect with our friend and journalist, Peter Galaska, who lives over in the Richmond area. Peter, good morning. Good morning. Well, Peter, this is one of those weeks when the the national story ends up having some state implications. Uh, Donald Trump tweeted last weekend that that four uh, women of color who are in Congress should go back to where they came from. Um, And that has blown up a whole lot of conversations. Uh, You've got um, Mm -hmm. some of Trump's base really, frankly, doubling down on it and a lot of other people who are aghast at what's happening. Uh, Take me through the national story and then let's let's move it to Virginia. Yeah, I, I basically, I mean, what's, what's happened is once again, Trump has come through with uh, an utterly racist and insulting comment. He tweeted about uh, four com- congresswomen, um, Alexandra uh, Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley, Ilan Omar, and Rashiba Talan. And all of them, um, he claimed that they should go back where they came from, apparently because they represent progressive views, when in fact the only one who was born overseas and is actually now a naturalized citizen is uh, a congressman. Congresswoman Oma, and the rest were born in the United States. And this is just really over the top. It sparked all kinds of things uh, that are really negative. Um, I think, one, it sets the tone of uh, Trump's re-election campaign for 2020, which isn't that much uh, different than 2016. And I was taken aback that uh, in Greenville, North Carolina, um, Trump held a rally where the crowd was uh, mostly a white crowd was screaming, you know, send her back, send her back, which is reminiscent of the 2016 chant about Hillary Clinton, lock her up, lock her up. And, you know, I thought, where am I? I mean, are we in Nazi Germany? Are we in uh, Mussolini's Italy? Or where are we? And uh, so it's brought all kinds of implications that are really ugly. Uh, so and then over here in Virginia, the uh, Virginia congressional delegation, the two senators we've got are both Democrats, Mark Warner and Tim Kaine. They've both tweeted responses or, or responded in some yeah. way. Well, well, one thing that that um, Tim Kaine tweeted was that he just pointed out that uh, EEOC, uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, a federal agency which oversees you know bias and things and combats it in the workplace, has noted very clearly that it's really improper and uh, unfair to bring up a person's ethnicity uh, in a, in a job interview, and. Um, you know, Kelly Conway, uh, Trump, a bigwig in the administration, actually confronted a reporter and asked his ethnicity as if that mattered. 
And so that is kind of interesting because Virginia is really going through a significant change um, as far as, uh, you know, the foundation people, which would be, you know, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants that everybody used to think of as being in charge. Yeah. Take us through some of how Virginia's uh, yeah. complexion, as it were, is changing. Okay. This is according to a 2017 report by the American Immigration Council. And it found then, which is only a couple of years ago, that one in six workers in Virginia is an immigrant. One in eight residents is a is a, an immigrant, and one in eleven of children is a child of an immigrant, and that this is a pretty significant you know change over the years, and that um, you know it's really a mixed bag where people come from. The most come from El Salvador, followed by India, uh, Korea, Vietnam, and then Mexico. So it's not as if everybody's coming from you know Latin America at all. And um, they're actually fairly high, highly educated. Only a little less than 20% has less than a high school diploma. Some have advanced degrees. So, um, you know, this is really playing a role as, uh, you know, people come in. They, they're not necessarily progressive or liberal. They can be conservative. Um, but it's really a change. And, and Virginia's already been through uh, a major uh, immigration flap of its own a few years back with Corey Stewart. Mm-hmm. So in Virginia, if you tally up that that one in eight uh, residents of Virginia, one in eight Virginians who who are from another country, one in eleven who are the children of of mm-hmm. immigrants, mm-hmm. that's more. That's twenty one, twenty two percent of of the population right. total. So I mean, if you say go back to where you came from, increasingly that is Virginia. Right. I mean, what are you going to say to these people? I mean, for example, I mean, a lot of Indians can't come here um, to take jobs in retail or engineering. Uh, ditto Korea. And a lot of the people, say, from uh, Latin America have been invited, say, to go, you know, depending on the jobs, I mean, to go, say, to the Valley of Virginia, Shenandoah Valley, where they work in poultry. And I met Rep. Corey Stewart back about 10 years ago. Prince William County outside of D.C. was undergoing massive uh, suburban growth. So they brought in many, many Hispanic workers because they needed them badly because they didn't have enough people to build the houses and everything. And then as soon as the crash came in 08, Everybody wanted him gone. I mean, not everybody, but Corey Stewart and his like, who was then head of the Board of Supervisors, who ran unsuccessfully for offices, higher offices later. But, you know, that that was kind of startling because, I mean, what is it? And then it kind of now I don't know what's going to happen in Virginia with Trump, uh, but, you know, it's still just more evidence of the really kind of sad state that the presidency's taken. Yeah. What what comes next here in Virginia? I mean, uh, where where how's this going to play out with our elections and our politics? Well, that's a great question because, of course, the entire um, General Assembly is up for grabs come November, and there are people running against some well, kind of the old, you know, strongholders like you know Kirk Cox. Uh, we'll see what happens there. And we saw uh, had a taste of the change in the congressional races last year with the um, you know three women winning important Congress congressional seats. We'll see what happens. I mean, you know, it, it really depends. You've got this polarization, which is really getting extreme. And, you know, you would think that, you know, more immigration, more people with outside views would come in and make the state a little bit more, you know, tolerant. But then again, we'll see just how far the Trump backlash uh, solidifies some of the white elements. Yeah. Turning to a story in Richmond, that is sort of familiar in terms of themes. Um, there are parents at a, at a coveted majority white elementary school uh, in Richmond, mm-hmm. and they are rallying mm-hmm. against a proposal to combine that school with a majority black school nearby. Uh, take me through this story. 
Okay. Well, it kind of brings back another sad thing, which is, you know, um, it goes back to the 60s and 70s, 70s when to achieve integration, uh, a number of school districts had to have busing or merge schools. It happened in Richmond. It happened in Charlotte, North Carolina. It happened in Boston, which brought out huge, you know, protests and violence. But anyway, what's happened was that in the Fan District of Richmond, which is a very quaint uh, neighborhood of uh, Victorian homes, a little bit west of downtown, has a school there called um, William a- uh, Fox Elementary in the Fan District, which is a you know a, you know elementary school, and uh, a lot of the Fan people who tend to be more white, more you know upscale, because the homes are expensive there, uh, were very happy with that school, and they actually some people said that they would pick living in the Fan because their children could go to to Fox and be fine. Not too far away near Bird Park, there's the John B. Carey Elementary School, which is is more uh, African-American. And Richmond schools have a lot of problems, um, and they, they've always been kind of, their plants have been awful. A lot of cases, you know, roofs are caving in in some of them. The cases, there's a, you know, there are issues about SOL scores and everything else. So one of the ideas that the school board wanted to do was to merge, um, you know, split up. You know, you'd have a, a certain number of years going to Fox, then they'd have to go to Cary, which isn't really that far away. Well, this has really brought out a lot of, um, you know, latter-day, I hate to say it, but racism about, you know, we, we want our neighborhood, but we don't want to, you know, be really be in the city, uh, which has all these problems. And so it, it's kind of an interesting, you know, little uh, morality play going on in Richmond, kind of soul searching for those who actually think about it. I'm reminded of of some of the sociologists I've known who say, you know, racism isn't just individual acts of meanness. Racism also is these structural things like zoning. Absolutely, because I mean, you've got Richmond, you've got some really, you know, kind of segregated thing. You have these big housing projects which are just awful that were built 50, 60 years ago like Gilpin Court and Mosby Court. And that's where a lot of the shootings are um, that you hear about a lot. And then you've got the white Richmond. Uh, Of course, most of the whites moved out back when they built the interstates in the 50s, but they moved to Chesterfield and Henrico and Hanover. But but even so, you have an influx now of, of people wanting to live in the city who are white, who are uh, or maybe not white, but they're affluent, uh, like places like Scott's Edition are getting a millennial boost. And so is Manchester on the other side of town. The fan has always been kind of a quaint, you know, kind of bougie kind of place. I, I lived there once. Um, and so, you know, it, it's just interesting because you're, you're seeing these these old but new clashes. And uh, and when you, you put that in the in the spectrum in the, of, 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 the, of the Trump racism and Trump, you know, pushing and hitting, you know, really painful buttons. It's kind of disconcerting. Yeah. All right, Peter. Thanks so much. All right. I'll talk to you next week. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Tej FM network. T-E-E-J dot F-M. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. And now we talk with Peter Headland about an initiative to provide virtual tours of enslaved people's dwellings that are still standing. 
Well, in this last segment of Soundboard, we turn to Peter Headland. He's the director of the Encyclopedia of Virginia over at Virginia Humanities. Uh, Peter, you and your team have created visual tours of the living quarters of former Virginia slaves. Take me through this project. What do these tours look like? If you have ever looked at Google Maps and looked at Google Street View, uh, I think and a lot of people have looked at the you know their house from the street view, um, it's the same technology. It's just depicting the interiors of dwellings that uh, enslaved Virginians lived in. What is this project exactly? Uh, so it's part. So I, I'm the director of Encyclopedia Virginia, which is a program at Virginia Humanities, and uh, our mission is to um, document the history and culture of the Commonwealth of Virginia. And we do that mostly through uh, online Encyclopedia of Virginia entries. But about four or five years ago, we realized, you know, being online, of course, we have a lot of uh, opportunities to do things that a print encyclopedia can't do, mapping, uh, video, audio. Uh, but one of those things is virtual tours. So we can describe places in which uh, famous people lived or uh, uh, famous events uh took place, but we can also take people virtually into those spaces with this technology. So when you're reading about these people or these events, you can sort of virtually explore the landscapes in which that history uh, happened. Now, this isn't like Monticello, where the, the slave dwellings were torn down a long time ago and they've reconstructed. This is actually dwellings that were built and still stand. Th- that That's correct. We've been working with uh, three um, architectural historians and archaeologists to help you know who who specialize in these structures and they're helping us identify extant slave dwellings and getting us access and uh, you know helping us describe the context of these buildings and history. You were in some of these dwellings, uh, formerly split slave homes. Um, take me through the experience of being inside one of these buildings. Uh, it it's it, it's a it's a moving experience. So when um, I'm upstairs, for example, I'm thinking of a of a, a dwelling I was in um, in the valley in uh, Rockbridge County, and there's very little light. It's stuffy up in the up in the attic. You know, think about July in Central Virginia, um, and uh, because there's not a lot of light, the cameras that we use take a long time to complete the exposure. You know, it's a long. Uh, shutter time. So you have a lot of time to sort of reflect on where you are. And it's, uh, it's, it, it, it can, it can really be, a, it can affect you to, to, to think about what it'd be like if this was your home in the middle of July in, in, uh, central Virginia. And it's, it's sobering. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's not a great feeling. It's a, a compelling way to, to translate history for kind of public, public consumption. We think so, and we think it actually plays really well in a classroom too. And that's uh, who we consider, you know, hopefully our our main audience is the, you know, Virginia K through twelve educational community. And we hope we're providing them with a way to sort of engage in virtual field trips as opposed to you know getting in a bus and driving across Virginia to to visit some of these places that in reality are not accessible publicly. You know, when you talk about the slave dwellings, these are on people's private properties. Uh, the public is not welcome there. And in some cases, the, the public wouldn't be safe inside some of these structures because they're just not structurally sound. And this is a, a technology that allows people to visit them uh, without having to deal with private property and you know structural dangers. It brings it all into one spot you can just kind of click to. 
exactly, and in some ways that's that's more uh, advantageous. You know, a, a real field trip, you really have you're limited by how far you can drive in you know a day. With these virtual field trips, you can traverse Virginia virtually, you know, very quickly and compare places. Yeah. Tell me more about your partnership with with Google on this technology. You've done you've worked with them before. Yeah, they, uh, Google has um, a group there called uh, the Google Earth Outreach Group, and they're dedicated to working with nonprofits and educational institutions, uh, tribal organizations, to use Google mapping tools to help those organizations tell their stories, to help those organizations sort of uh, move their missions forward. And they have a, an annual event out in Mountain View, California, that I've been attending for five or six years and that's sort of where the, the seed of this idea began was uh, looking at ways that uh, organizations can take that Street View technology and use it to help further their missions. Um, so they have, they have uh, donated equipment, they've provided training, uh, and they've provided a lot of support for this, pro- this work as we've uh, moved forward with it. What do you hope people get out of these virtual tours? What do you hope they take away? Well, I think for so long, um, history has been uh, told from the perspective of the big house on the plantation, uh, which is typically where the white enslavers lived. And we're trying to flip the script and say, you know, history is uh, should include everybody. And we want to make sure that uh, the enslaved people that really built the wealth that Virginians continue to enjoy uh, are included in that story. What are the biggest challenges you, you face in, in doing this work? Um, it can be hot in the summer. <laughs> to, you know, there's no air conditioning in these buildings. Um, it, you know, it's, 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 it's challenging to locate them. It's challenging to um, get access to them sometimes. Um, I don't think uh, we even know where all of these buildings are. And frankly, they're, they're slowly deteriorating and, you know, fewer exist uh, year by year. That preserving the history in digital form to keep it going. Right. Yeah. So some of these some of these buildings that we have photographed will not be around in probably ten years, and so all that will be left is this virtual uh, manifestation of those spaces. Mm-hmm. What's the goal? I mean, you, you, we can preserve the the experience of of seeing it, and, and even to some extent being inside it. Um, why do we Why do we need to carry that forward with us? I, there, there's something about being in those spaces where these exploited, enslaved people live their lives um, in very difficult conditions that it's impossible to read about. And I hope that sort of this virtual uh, experience gives people more empathy for that, for that history. You know, I, I hope it does. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting looking through history. It's all happened, of course, and you start to think it had to have happened that way. And yet here we are while well, history keeps being made. You know, how do you how does the work you do translate into what people do with their lives today? Gosh, uh, that, that, that's a great question. I, I don't know. I mean, you're right. History continues to be made. People continue to be exploited. Um, you know, I'm uh, you know, I'm not sure that will ever end. But, you know, let's let's use the past to maybe examine the present. Where can folks see the visualizations and find out more? encyclopediavirginia.org. We have a, uh, a tab right on the top of the screen that says uh, uh, virtual tours. And uh, we've got probably 30 to 40 virtual tours published at this point. Peter, thanks so much. Great. Great to be here. Peter Hedlund is the director of the Encyclopedia Virginia over at Virginia Humanities. Find out more at encyclopediavirginia.org. 
Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name is Lewis Reining. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Moen Alasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or our podcast home at TEEJ FM. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Have a great week.